And Father, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would make real to each one of us the things you want us to hear, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in John 8 this morning, actually John 7:53 through 8, 11, and this is a well-known story in John's gospel, and sort of by way of digression, we're going to back into this story, and there's a couple things that we need to talk about before we actually get to the elements of the story itself. Uh, the first is this, this story, we can objectively say, was almost certainly never a part of the original Gospel of John. This is a contested passage related to the New Testament, and if, for those of you who were in the Sunday school last fall, this was one of the things we looked at. One of the weeks we took to talk about the Scriptures themselves and manuscripts were contested passages. John 8 ranks right at the top of these with Mark 16, the end of Mark's Gospel. Objectively, what we know is this. This passage... John seven fifty three through eight eleven is not in any of the earliest manuscripts. Any of the earliest Greek manuscripts that contain the New Testament, this story is not in them. The first occurrence is in the manuscript called Bizet from the fifth century. That'd be in the four hundreds. That's still quite old, but it's the exception, not the rule. And then, frankly, we don't see this story again in the Gospels until the ninth century. So you can see why there was concern about what's the origin of the story, how did it get here. Besides that, when it is inserted, it's, it's inserted in a variety of places. So in John's Gospel, we've got it now at chapter 8, but the truth is in some of these earlier manuscripts, it's also appended to the end of John's Gospel. It's also found in Luke 21 and Luke 24 in old manuscripts. So on the downside... It's not in any of the earliest manuscripts. It's, it comes in once in the 400s and then not again until the 800s. Uh, and when it is inserted, it, op- it occasionally has asterisks on the front and the, and the back end of this because the folks that were, were writing these manuscripts were indicating that we're not sure about this thing. Um, the other thing is, almost certainly John did not write this story, and the, the reason scholars come to this conclusion and, and seems rational or seems consistent is this, the terms that are used in this story, John doesn't use anywhere else in his gospel, and the syntax, the Greek use of, of word and language is different in this story than it is the rest of the gospel. So almost certainly this was never a part of the original manuscripts of John's gospel wasn't originally in the early gospels. In the uh, 1950s, I believe it was, when the Revised Standard Version was printed, in the first printing, they took this story, they took it out of its context of John, and they put it as an addendum. And there was such public outcry against the publishers, the Revised Standard Version, that they put it in their next printing. So it was a short-lived cull, so to speak. The only Bible that I know of that's being printed today that takes this story out of the flow of John and puts it as an addendum is the New English Bible, which is primarily popular in Britain, not the United States. Or Excuse me, it's the Revised English Version, which is a revision of the New English Bible. So that one today 
takes this and doesn't keep it in the flow of the text, but puts it as an addendum. In fact, if you read many commentaries on this passage, they will do the same thing. Just because it's fairly universally recognized that this story was not part of John's gospel originally and was not part of the gospel records originally. Having said all that, uh, let me also close with this. This passage is assumed, this story is assumed to be an oral tradition that eventually made its way into the written record. It's assumed to be an accurate oral tradition that eventually was recorded and then inserted. And F.F. Bruce, who is one of my favorite commentators and a great scholar from England, has this to say. This is his conclusion about this story from John 8. He says, they, that is, these verses constitute, in fact, a fragment of authentic gospel material not originally included in any of the four gospels. Its preservation, for which we should be thankful, is due to the fact that it was inserted at what seemed to be a not inappropriate place in the gospel of John or of Luke. So, F.F. Bruce, sharp guy, I suspect this is kind of the consensus. The commentators... Serious guys who know the manuscript traditions and records typically will do the same thing. They've come to the same conclusion. We know it doesn't belong originally in John's gospel. It wasn't in any of the gospels originally, but we assume it was an oral tradition that was recorded at some point and then was brought into John's gospel where it settled. So we will, as we go through this morning, we'll treat it just the way we would any of the rest of John's gospel, but it would be dishonest, frankly, at some point not to tell you that that this almost certainly doesn't belong here originally. Oral tradition made itself into the written record, and that's the way we're taking it this morning. So that's one, one thing. Let's look at the text itself, the story, and then go from there, and we'll digress a little further again. Uh, and if you remember, we're leaving the temple and the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus says, come to me if you're thirsty, and if you believe... Out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And we've talked about the Holy Spirit. And the the high priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to go arrest Jesus. And they come back and they say, boy, we've never heard anybody quite like this. And the leaders are upset. And that ended John 7. And that's where we pick up today. Everyone went to his home. John 8, 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center, they say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. In the law of Moses, excuse me, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. 
to continue to digress, there's two issues related to this. One is the setup of the situation itself, and then we'll look at the story, that is the woman and the, the particulars of the story itself. But first, for the, set, the setup of the situation, um, this smells, this story, and I don't mean related to the manuscript. I mean this, the situation smells. Uh, how did they catch this woman in the act of adultery? This looks like a setup. It doesn't say it is, but we know that that they've brought her to Jesus to test him. And we know that the folks involved in this have a motive to displace Jesus, either from authority or popularity to get rid of him or to minimize his, his impact and his public standing in one way or another. This is their motive. You remember in other occasions, they're trying to trap him. And John tells us this is a test. They're out to get him. This is a test. You remember another, probably the best other known instance was when they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay tax? They think they've got him no matter what he says. We're going to ask him a hard question. Either way he comes down, we've got him. And they think this is the same situation. We're testing him. Either way he comes down, we've got him. So we know they've got motive to try and get him, and and I don't think this would be beyond them. Remember later, too, the folks that are involved in this are also likely the ones who get people to intentionally lie about what Jesus said or did during his trial or what uh, the ruse that was called a trial. They got people to come in and tell lies. They were behind that. So it wouldn't be surprising if this were the same case here. Then the other question related to this is, where's the guy? If this wasn't a setup, where's the guy? If she was caught in the act, she wasn't by herself. So where's her partner? He's not here. My suspicion is that this was a setup, and the poor, wretched, unfortunate woman is the only one who didn't know it. And that the Pharisees had probably conspired this group, and they had a willing accomplice in some guy And so it's like a trap is being set, and the trap is ultimately for Jesus, but the bait is the woman. And so my suspicion is this was a setup, because there's there's just enough going on that we wonder, how did this come about? And isn't it convenient that Jesus is in the temple when this takes place so they can bring her right over in the morning, which is an odd time too. So the story itself stinks a bit, and it sure looks like this was a trap to get Jesus, and the woman is unfortunately the bait. Now, how are the Pharisees going to use this? To, in what way does this setup help them try and get Jesus in trouble one way or another? And it goes something like this. On one hand, we know that the woman broke the law. This is absolutely without dispute. And we know what the penalty that the law prescribes is for sure, too. So that's all kind of black and white. But they're hoping that when Jesus takes a stance in the story that he is going to be able to be found fault with one way or another. So it goes like this. If Jesus says she's guilty according to the law and she must be put to death, then they can say something like this. Okay, they can go to the Romans and say this guy is preaching sedition because the Jews can't put anyone to death. They don't have the right, the legal right with Rome in authority, they can't put anyone to death. That's why with Jesus' crucifixion, they take him to the Romans. You know, later when you read Acts, when they stoned Stephen, this was, these guys were totally out of control. 
uh, here they're coolly thinking. They're in their lair, so to speak, spinning their webs. When Stephen confronts them, calls them names, and they respond, they're out of control. They're angry and they grab him, they take him and they stone him and they kill him. This wasn't a cool, calculated thing they did. This was, they're out of, they're, in fact, if you read Acts 7, they're enraged. It says they look like wolves and they just lose it. But for them to do this, this, this was at great risk to themselves. And so they're normally thinking more coolly than that. So they would be able to go to the Romans and say, you know what, this guy over here, this public figure, he's telling us that we should put someone to death and we don't have the authority to do so. But also, they know a bit about Jesus. They know this guy hangs out with tax collectors. He hangs out with people who are publicly assumed to be sinners. They also know that he preaches forgiveness So part of his popularity, they assume, is related to the kind of folks he hangs out with and that he preaches forgiveness. So if he says this woman stands condemned by the law, they think that he'll also potentially alienate his political base, as it were. So they think if he comes down conservatively, we've got him. We'll go to the Romans and his uh, followers who like the fact that he preaches forgiveness and he hangs out with low lives, then they'll reject him. On the other hand, what is the other hand? If he says she can go free, then they'll say, well, look, this guy doesn't support the law. He's a lawbreaker, and he's preaching against Moses. So they think they've got him in a corner. Either way he goes, he's caught. So what will he do? And we'll look at that in a minute with his responses. So the Pharisees probably have created this whole scenario to put this woman in front of Jesus as bait, to put him in a situation which they think he cannot extricate himself. And now finally, uh, let's get to the story itself, which is the woman and her sin, or a story about judgment and mercy. Uh, When Charles Dickens opens his book, The Christmas Carol, he tells us that Marley was dead, that you've got to understand that for the story to make any sense. And in this story of the woman in adultery, you need to understand this gal's guilty. She's guilty as charged. And the death sentence is prescribed, and there's no doubt about it. She's guilty, and the sentence is death. And if you don't get that, the rest of the story is potentially meaningless. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 14. And remember that the person she stands before is the lawgiver. You know, John says no man has at any time seen God. And we assume, generally, in the Old Testament occasions where someone sees or interacts with God, it's not the Father, it's Jesus. So in that sense, I assume that when Israel went to the mountain, to Sinai, and the clouds came down, and the thunder, and the lightning, and this, this voice that sounded like a horn that would blow your eardrums out, that was Jesus. So the Jesus she stands before is the one who, with Moses on the mountain, gave these laws. Don't forget that. And the law said, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14. The law also says, Leviticus 20, if a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's the law. That's Sinai and that's Moses and Jesus is the lawgiver. Deuteronomy 22, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, 
and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So our unnamed woman here stands absolutely guilty, no doubt about it, no question, no gray shading, nothing like that. Adultery and the death penalty. This is absolutely what the law required. Now, Jesus has three responses. The first is he writes on the ground. Uh, I find it interesting when we spend tons of time talking about what a text doesn't say instead of what it does say. This text says Jesus wrote on the ground. You'll find lots and lots and lots of speculation on what Jesus wrote on the ground. The text does not say. So anything we do is a guess. Anything we do is an inference based on whatever else we know or think we know. There's at least a few options. There's many more than I'm going to go over this morning. One of the options is this. Jesus writes on the ground just like a Roman magistrate. The first time he writes, he records the charge. The second time he writes, he records his verdict. Or Jesus stoops and he writes their sins, that is their individual sins, the sins of people that he knows supernaturally in the crowd before him such that they can read them. Or the first time he stoops, he writes something about the law, maybe Exodus 20. And the second time he writes, he writes something about grace or God's forgiveness. We don't know what he writes. It certainly adds a dramatic portion of the story. And as he's doing so, it's kind of irritating these Guys, because they kind of, you know, get on with it. What do you say? So that he writes, we know. What he writes, we don't know. That's his first response. We don't know what it, what it is, but it, it goads the guys into action. They say, come on, tell us what you, what you think. The second response is to the crowd. When he responds verbally, remember, this is what they're waiting for. They're waiting for him to commit verbally because this is when they've got him. He says at verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him first throw a stone at her. He who is without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone. Now, of course, they thought he had to say one thing or the other, and he doesn't. They thought they got him one way or another, and he tricks them again. You know, he slips out from their clutches again. It's important to realize here, he says nothing about denying the law either the law she broke or the provision of the law. He doesn't deny any of it. He is the lawgiver. So he doesn't rescind the law. He just adds a caveat to it. He just adds a a condition at the end. Go ahead and keep the law, but only under this condition. You who haven't sinned, you, you be the first. Now, this could mean a number of things to the guys that are involved in this. Um, this could mean that all of them there are guilty of adultery and he knows it. This is, a, this is a possibility. And like it is in many parts of the world still today, I think less so in the West certainly, uh, men had it better than women and penalties tended to be stiffer for women than for men and men had more leeway in what they could get away with than women. Maybe these guys are all guilty of adultery and Jesus knows it and they know it. Or... Maybe this whole thing was a setup. And if it was, then these guys all know that they are complicitous in the act. That is, if this was a setup, 
and they conspired with the guy who was with our woman, then they know they're not just witnesses, and it was witnesses who were to be the first to cast the stones. They're not just witnesses. They're complicitous in the act itself if they instigated it. And so Jesus may be inferring to them, I know what you did, and I know you're as guilty as this woman and the man who's not here with her. Or he may just be saying, and they may have some conviction, that in general they know they're all guilty of sins, and if it requires sinlessness to start the throwing, that none of them qualify. Whatever it was, it was something pointed enough that none of these guys was going to follow through and start with the stones. So Jesus makes no denial of the law. He just adds, keep the law, but you who start it, you make sure that you're not guilty of sin as well. And then Jesus finally gets down to the woman. After he confronts the guys, of course, they slink out, you know, the older to the youngest. Much has been made of this as well. Maybe it means the older guys are smarter and shrewder, and they get it first, and so they leave. And then the younger guys get it later. You know, like a joke sometimes people tell, and I'm the last to get it. So, you know, the, the, the slowest leave last. Uh, we're not sure why, but the oldest to the youngest leave. And now Jesus and the woman are left here. Three responses to her. Where are your accusers? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, you've got to put yourself in this woman's shoes. Now, just imagine... Uh, sort of, imagine as much as is healthy to do so, Um, you are caught, you're caught, you're exposed during an intimate, private act. You're caught and exposed. That would be embarrassing. But you're not just caught and exposed, you're drug out into the light of day from your home or some private secluded area, and not just into the light of day, but where? Into the temple. And you're accused by this mob of angry men. And you stand here with no defense. You're guilty as charged. The penalty is, is in black and white. Can you... Uh, this would be fearful, dreadful, embarrassing, shameful. I mean, I can't imagine. I don't even want to. But anyway, we need to think about it to put ourselves in her shoes. And here she is in the midst, and these guys are reminding Jesus of the law, and she probably knows what the law says too. And I suspect she hasn't a hope in the world. And now the sun's coming out a little. The guys, the accusers are gone. But she's still with Jesus, this prophet, this man of God in the temple. What's he going to say? And he asks her, where are your accusers? And she can say, well, they're, they're gone. They're not here. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to say, and he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I mean, I suspect this gal goes from, you know, the brink of death to the sense and the hope of life in just moments here. She goes from the pit of despair to liberation just in moments and from utter depths of despair to hope again. Just this couldn't have taken very long. This whole scene from the time of her discovery to Jesus addressing her couldn't have taken very long. You imagine everything she's gone through. Now, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. 
And I want to spend just a little bit of time on this because I think we can get it wrong on this thing both ways. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. On one hand, I think we love hearing Jesus say, I don't condemn you. And that's good. And and we all need to hear this, certainly. But I think it's possible to hear this and not really appreciate what these words mean. In other words, standing before the lawgiver, who's holy and just, how can he say, I don't condemn you? How can a holy God overlook sin? You know, he can't. He cannot overlook sin. This is why we've got to get it clear. She broke the law, and the law says death. And Jesus cannot not condemn her based on the law. It can't happen. So how can he say, I don't condemn you? Well, of course, when he says, I don't condemn you, he's basing his pardon, his forgiveness of her on his death, right? She was under the death penalty. So when Jesus says, I don't condemn you, what's he doing? He's saying, I'm taking your penalty. I take the death penalty for you. For Jesus to say, I don't condemn you, means he takes the condemnation himself. So when God forgives, I think especially in our culture, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had it right 50 years ago, he coined a phrase called cheap grace. Christians have this view of cheap grace. That is, sin costs nothing, and it's okay if I obey or I'm holy, and it doesn't matter that much if I'm not or whatever. This is anything but cheap grace. When Jesus forgives our woman friend here, he does so only because he knows he's taking her death sentence when he goes to the cross. So there's no, there's, there's no possibility of a holy God overlooking sin apart from the sin being covered. So every time you read a gospel story where Jesus says to someone, I forgive you, you need to say in your mind, he's only forgiving because he's paying for their sin. He's taking the penalty. In this case, he's taking literally the death sentence for her. The lawgiver is is being exposed to the penalty that the law prescribed in himself. Remember that the law was just. It reflected God's holy character. It was righteous. In fact, in Romans, Paul says, what's wrong with the law? Because the law shows we're sinners. And he says, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law just exposes our deficiencies. Jesus in this story, though, he transcends justice or, or mere justice with mercy. But he does so only in keeping with his own perfection. He doesn't break his character of holiness so that he can be merciful. He's merciful only because his character requirement for holiness is met. It happens to be met in himself. Psalm 85.10 says, loving kindness and truth or mercy and truth have met together righteousness and peace, God's righteous standards and peace for us, have kissed each other. This can only happen in Christ. You and I can't do this. If justice only is going to be served, it's going to be laid out on our head. We have no appeal for mercy if God is only holy. But he's also compassionate, but the cost of the sin, the penalty still must be paid. 
and it's paid by himself. Now, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And it's not because God's bloodthirsty. It's because sin brings death. And that's a fact. And so related to God's judgment, it's just that Jesus takes it on himself instead of letting us accept that for ourselves. That's why mercy and truth can meet. That's why this woman can experience, in a sense, both God's justice and his mercy because Jesus is making the provision for her. He doesn't lower his standard. His standard does not come down a bit. His standard is absolutely maintained related to justice. His mercy comes at the cost to himself. In winding down and thinking about applications on this, um, look at verse 9 where it says, He was left alone, the crowds are gone, Jesus is left alone, and the woman. Now, on one hand, you know, to the guys that were involved in accusing this gal, she was nothing and nobody. She was an object, and she's not even named in the story. She was just somebody they could use. But in another sense, I love the fact that the story doesn't name her, and, I mean, she's not described, it's just the woman. Well, that, that sounds kind of hard or impersonal on one hand, but, you know, on the other hand, it leaves it available or more readily available for us to put ourselves in her shoes. She's just this person, and she's brought before Jesus. And I love it when it says, he's left alone, and there she is. And remember this, uh, in the end, ultimately, there's only one person you and I will stand before and give account to. And it's not the crowds around us. It's not each other. It's Jesus Christ. This is a great picture. You and I will probably in our lifetimes, I hope we're never part of the, of the mob, but we will almost certainly be accused or slandered or talked about or lied about by other people like the crowds here. And you know, on one hand, I'm a firm believer if someone accuses me of something or slanders or lies about me, uh, Winston Churchill said he always took the criticism of his foes because he could profit by it. He would find a way to profit by it. Not because what they said was necessarily true, but because he would take that as an opportunity to review himself or his policies or his life. We can always do that. But don't pay too much attention and don't give too much credence to the mob because you don't answer to them in the end. In the end, when you and I live out the last day of our life, there's no one around us to accuse us. It's just Jesus and you, Jesus and me. Now, on one hand, guys, this is worse than the mob, right? Because Jesus sees everything. You can't hide a thing. You know, the truth is this gal, this was one sin she, she was exposed for. Boy, I wonder how many other sins she could have been exposed for. Or you or me, you know, this was one in a day. And the truth is, we all sin, James says, in many ways. So all of us at any time, we could be found just like this woman. And maybe people criticize us or accuse us for very legitimate reasons, or maybe it's not legitimate. But in the end, remember that it's before Christ that we stand, fearful because he knows everything, but also we've got hope because we know he's merciful. And he's merciful at his cost. You know, this is something something to consider as well. You know, when you're tempted to feel like God's given you a raw deal, and we all, we all do at times, uh, Romans 8, you know, if he gave you his son, what would he withhold? 
If he's given you what's most valuable, the Father has, why would he withhold anything of smaller value? Well, the answer is, of course, he wouldn't. And if Jesus died so he could give you and I compassion and mercy, then you know you can get it. It cost him his death. It's so valuable. You know what? He wants to spend it. He paid for it, so he wants to spend it. A second thing is this. Sin really does bring death. Sin really does bring death. In our story, and just on a microcosm here, on our story, the woman's sin really brought death. It brought death to Jesus. He accepts her death penalty that the law provided, the just and righteous law. Sin brought death. And, of course, when Jesus goes to the cross, it's for the sins of the world. Sin brings death. And Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, alienated from the Father, he's the sin bearer. He's the one shedding blood. He's the one atoning or covering our sin by his death. He accepts the penalty due us. Sin brings death. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you've trusted in Christ, the fear of eternal death, separation from the Father, that's gone. That's not an issue anymore. But as we've talked about not long ago out of Romans, when a Christian sins, you know what? You still experience death. It can take a number of forms, but you still experience death. You know that if you express angry, hateful words towards someone else, how do you feel afterwards? That's death. Or when you harbor unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart towards someone else, it doesn't hurt them, but what what do you get? You get the experience of death. You lose your peace and your joy. You experience death. Whatever it is, sexual impurity, you get death. You, You destroy relationships. I mean, it can look a number of ways. Anything you think of, when we give ourselves to sin today, we still experience death in some fashion because that's the way it's got to be. Sin brings death. Big scale, eternal separation from God the Father or Jesus bearing the penalty do our sins, but sin always brings death. This is why, too, in part at least, Jesus says the last words to her are what? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Uh, Let me say something about this, too, this thing with sin. Um, I do think it's easy for us to trivialize the Uh, the seriousness of sin and this thing about sin brings death and that a holy God can't look on sin. And I say it in part with with this in mind. The culture in which we live in, just read in the paper yesterday, that the uh, publicly proclaiming lesbian Methodist pastor has been reinstated into her position as a church leader. The Anglican Church in America has a professing homosexual as a bishop. These folks will tell you something like this. God doesn't condemn and neither should you. God doesn't condemn me and neither should you. And it's kind of based on this thought that uh, we're all forgiven. And see, Jesus says to this woman, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And they'll say, you shouldn't condemn others. Well, Jesus didn't lower the standard, though. And God does condemn sin. And for those folks who won't accept Christ's payment on their behalf, God will condemn them. God does condemn sin. Matter of fact, if God didn't condemn sin, what was Jesus doing on the cross? No point. If God doesn't condemn sin, 
Jesus doesn't need to die, and we can skip merrily down the lane. Jesus' death on the cross is the absolute testament and evidence of God's holiness on one hand and his mercy on the other. It's both. But you see, they meet equally. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They kissed each other in a gruesome death kiss, if you will, at the cross. That's why they can meet together. It's only in the person of Christ, it's only in his work, that these things can cohabit, as it were, that they can meet each other. God's standards for righteousness and his desire to be merciful. But we live in a culture now that says God has no standard, and sin doesn't bring death, and God doesn't condemn, and it's a lie. God does condemn. He condemns sin. He will condemn sinners who forsake the availability of his son's salvation on their behalf. And the church is called to a standard of holiness, absolutely, without question. Sin brings death. God takes it seriously. So he says, go and sin no more. And then lastly, when you read this story, whose side are you on? Or if you read this story, you know, a lot of times when we read a story, we're in the story. What vantage point do you find yourself taking when you hear this story or read this story? Are you with the crowd? Is your tendency to say to this woman or to others, guilty, get her. The accusers, those who want to demand justice, so to speak. Or do you find yourself with the woman? And do you, are you cringing and you think, man, I'm glad that's her and not me? Or whatever, you know, who do you identify with? And, you know, in this story, Jesus makes it plain that every person there but him is a sinner, right? The woman, it's clear, we know. But when he says, keep the law, this is the only requirement. As long as you are free of sin, then you go ahead and throw those stones. And when everyone leaves, that means they're all admitting to what? They're all sinners. And I love this story because it reminds us, it reminds all of us that all of us are sinners. We're all deficient. And at some way and sometime, we all stand with this gal just like this, open to legitimate accusation. Absolutely. Done wrong, Lord? Absolutely. And boy, don't we want to hear Jesus say, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. We sure do. To clarify something here, too, you know, Matthew 18 requires Christians to confront other Christians about sin. You remember Matthew 18? If your brother sins, go and reprove him. And if he repents, what's it say? You've won your brother. What's the goal? It's restoration. And if you follow that, if he won't repent, that is, if you're not restored to your brother initially, get some witnesses, do the same thing, tell the church, do the same thing. What's the goal all along? It's restoration. Entirely different than this. In this picture, we've got a group condemning and calling for this woman to be condemned. This is not what God calls us to do. It's not what God calls us in the church to do. But he does call us to reprove each other for the purpose of restoration. That's entirely different. We are called on to do that. Not condemn, but to restore. Let me close with uh, Psalm 116, verses 1 through 13. And as I read these, hear these words in the context of this story. 
in the context of this story. I love the Lord because he hears me. He hears my voice and my supplications because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of the grave were upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You've rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Father, I'm just struck by how much in need every one of us is to hear your words, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Lord, thanks for this gorgeous story that reminds us that all of us stand before you as those guilty, absolutely, Lord, guilty, that none of us lives up to your standard of righteousness. None of us meets your holiness. Lord Jesus, thanks that it wasn't passive, trite words that you uttered to her or to us when you said you didn't condemn her. Lord Jesus, thanks for drinking the awful cup, the penalty due us, each and every one of us, death for our sins. Thank you for taking that sentence upon yourself on the cross, for dying in our place, for rising for our justification. Father, I pray that we remember this gal and that we not just empathize with her, Lord, but that we see ourselves in her shoes, those who have been forgiven much. And Father, I pray that on one hand we are not those who condemn others, but that we condemn what you do, sin. We maintain your standard while at the same time recognizing and affirming to others that forgiveness is found through your Son. Lord, forgive those who are called or publicly acknowledged by your name who would make light of the cost of forgiveness borne by your Son. And Lord, help us as those who are forgiven in Christ. Help us to take to heart the words that our unnamed woman friend heard from you here, that you don't condemn us but to go and sin no more. Lord Jesus We ask you by your spirit, help us to live up to the life you've called us to. Help us to walk with you in the light of day, and we want to drink that cup of salvation and call upon your name. In Jesus' name, amen.